This is The Line Podcast, February the 2nd, 2024. Coming up on this installment with Matt Gurney and Jen Gerson, we're going to talk trans issues, not because we want to, but because apparently Alberta means that we have to. We're going to talk the Foreign Interference Inquiry. We don't really have that much to say about it. It's just kind of getting underway, but we have a few points to share. And an issue that I am worried about that I want you to be worried about, too. All that and more on the latest episode of The Line Podcast. again i don't want I, like, I don't can we just yeah right off the bat can i just say alberta's making us do this we are doing this under duress duress good we gotta talk about trans stuff again we gotta like, talk about trans stuff again the least favorite part of the news cycle these days and we've already had a plague and a series of wars and i still hate this the most okay so do the factual walkthrough um alberta this okay. week premier uh, premier daniel smith what did she announce? Okay, so she announced this whole suite of new trans policies, including um, restricting access to surgery for um, gender affirming surgery for uh, kids under 17. I believe restricting both puberty blockers and cross sex hormones for kids under 15. Um, she wants to do something about keeping trans women in particular out of uh, female, biologically female sports leagues. And she managed to slip something else in there about sex ed, essentially to the effect of if you're if you're going to be discussing gender issues, sex ed issues, you should be informing the parents. Um, also, uh, parental, uh, inform I believe either present parental information or consent. Oh, if yeah. Kid wants, to, name changes. wants to change their names or pronouns in school. So I think it's safe to say that Alberta has now presented a suite of views on trans issues that go significantly beyond what New Brunswick and Saskatchewan had previously announced and wanted to do. They had said, uh, Saskatchewan and, and I believe New Brunswick had said, yeah, we, we want parental consent and involvement on in, in school pronoun changes, but you know the rest of this stuff, really no province has had, has dared to way a finger on because of course trans issues are so utterly polarized that nobody really wants to touch this so especially us especially us you know for those people who are maybe not familiar with matt and i we don't think of ourselves as culture warriors per se we don't like weighing into culture warrior issues and also i find that particularly on the trans file there are people who have made the last years of their lives highly obsessed with these issues on one side or the other. I think at this point, the trans issue is so hyper-polarized that both of those sides are now extreme and unlikable um, in their own unique ways. And yeah. to be blunt, I've also kind of hit this point where, yeah, I kind of have my perspective on it. My perspective is probably more moderate than a lot of people. It's maybe more extreme than other people. But what am I going to say that's original or new here? Um, there, I don't have a lot to add to this conversation, except when it comes to Alberta, because of course I live in Alberta and I cover Alberta politics. So surprise, surprise, here I am forced to have a conversation about this yet again. Before we get we, into we've it, we've talked about make... trans issues before. Like we, it's not like we don't touch on it. We touch it's on just, it when we have to. Yeah, but we touch on it when we have to. It's not like we're going to build our careers around trans issues. I, I think that bluntly. Trans issues are a bit of, um, oh, I'm going to even get in trouble for saying this, they're a bit of a luxury issue. They're oh, the kind no, of I was issue... about to make the same point. 
yeah, yeah. They're, they're they're the sort of issue that you you that people who are financially well off and comfortable have the luxury of fixating on one side or the other yeah um or or the people who for whom a trans they have a trans kid or they have a gender dysphoric kid and it's and yep. it's a personal issue but those people are very very rare i know so, i know exactly what people are going to say jen they're going to say human rights are never a luxury yeah exactly dismiss that mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, that's that's mm-hmm. not what we mean what we no mean that's not that. what we mean by luxury issue when by the time you're getting to a point i mean like the number of trans people in our society and every last one of them is a human being with inherent worth and god's course, heart and all that stuff but it's a very niche issue in terms of the number of people affected and i think one of the things we've seen kind of throughout the progress of civil rights over the last 50 or 60 years is we've kind of tackled these things in the order of well there's there's, yeah there's a mass women's rights first half the population's women and then particularly in the united states the one of the big civil rights milestones was with with african-americans who were 10 to 15 percent of the population and in other places more then we got to gay rights which was kind of depending on how you want to look at what numbers you use five to ten percent of the population at the high end now we're down to trans rights which is a fraction of a percent of the population and again every last one of them is a human being with with worth but what's happening and i think is that a lot of the same energy and enthusiasm for the issues that affected 50 percent of the population is now being hyper compressed onto a niche issue that's a very small percent and i think that has made the debate somewhat insane Uh, yes that's correct um also i would say when i say that a luxury item you're right no no, i'm not saying that human rights are a luxury uh, thing or something that we can discard that's where people will go with it that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that the ladder here on priority yeah yeah, but i'm saying at the same time there's a maslow's hierarchy of needs issue here and that you know societies that are struggling to get their people fed tend not to fixate on trans rights Mm -hmm. um you know because you need to eat and be housed and be clothed and comfortable before you can start to move up the the chain of 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 priorities and fixations right um so yeah i think that the 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 trans issues have become absolutely hyper polarized to the extent that it is very very difficult for sane reasonable moderate people to have sane reasonable moderate conversations about this so to that end i would say look there's two ways that we can have this conversation about alberta one is to actually talk about what smith is proposing and the other one is to talk about the politics of why she's proposing it so i'm going to start with what she's proposing and i'm going to point out that there are some things here where i i don't i don't agree with her i think that she's taken on too much power within the within the realm of the state mm-hmm. sports is one of these areas right like why do you need the province to weigh in on what sports leagues will accept in their leagues like you need to make a positivist case for that case for that um and i don't think that she has successfully done so um you and i have talked about sports on your radio show we can get into it here but generally speaking I think that sports leagues should be able to evaluate the safety and evidentiary basis of whether or not trans women should be allowed in their league and be allowed to make that decision for themselves on the level of civic society. I mean, I kind of, you and I, when we talked about Saskatchewan and New Brunswick, we made the same sort of argument around parental rights and parental parental, um, disclosure of pronouns. I don't really want the state coming down and mandating top-down priorities for that I would like yeah. to have no, Mrs. In my... Johnson. This is how you will handle your grade seven class. Exactly. Yeah. I, I actually would like to be in a world where we trust Mrs. Johnson to be 
may have the discretion and the professionalism to be making those decisions because she's the one on the ground who knows the kids, knows the parents, and and can use her her own intuition and her own her own experience and guidance there. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I don't think that the provincial government or the federal government should necessarily be dictating any of this stuff from the top down. We should have trust and faith in our institutions to be able to handle this in a responsible way. Why is the provincial government dictating when children should receive um, uh, access to gender affirming surgeries as opposed to like the Canadian Medical Association? Like. Like, no, I like that the Canadian Medical Association is making this decision, but all of these institutional frameworks only work when you have trust in the institutional frameworks, when you have trust in the sports leagues to be able to make credible, rational decisions, when you have trust in the teachers unions and the teachers and the school boards to be making evidence and evidence-based rational decisions, and when you have trust in the medical associations to be making rational evidence-based decisions. Right now, the situation is so hyperpolarized and has been so hyperpolarized for years that the actual effect has been a degradation in the trust in those institutional frameworks so that I, as a parent, you know, I like my teacher, I like my principal, I like all of these people I actually interact with, but do I have trust in the institutional frameworks to be having rational conversations with my kids about gender, about sexuality, about all this? I mean, no, my my trust has been broken down. Do I have trust in the medical association to be, ha- to be having evidence-based conversations about when kids should be getting access to puberty blockers? No. no. And the reason why I don't have that trust is because the, the entire society has become so hyperpolarized on this issue and the rhetoric has become so elevated on this issue. It's become, you have to get on board with um, uh, puberty blockers at eight or you're a transphobic bigot who wants, you know, trans, trans kids, kids to, commit, to kill themselves, to kill themselves yeah. on mass, and that kind of rhetoric <clears throat> has actually eroded my faith in the institutional frameworks. Yeah. Because if that's the kind of fr- rhetoric that you're pulling at these at people who are trying to make the best decisions with the best evidence they have, then you are you are emotionally loading this conversation to such an extent that I don't think we're having a rational conversation anymore. We're having an emotional conversation and I can't trust these frameworks in that environment. And then, then that environment where I can't trust the institutions, what am I left with? I'm left with trusting the politicians. Yeah. I'm trust. I'm left with political backlash and I'm left with the state to engage in these extremely heavy handed reactionary tactics. And that's what I think are the political realities that are underlying what, Smith has done here. And I'm not saying that as a defense of Smith or that I like what she's done here. I don't. And I have some issues with it. I'm going to get into the politics in a second. But I think that if you have to understand that they're the res- they're, that these policies are the result of a society society-wide dynamic that has gone really, really off the rails. And if you don't acknowledge that, you can't understand the politics that are motivating it either. Years ago, Years ago, when we launched the line, one of the things we wrote in in our mission statement was that our institutions have lost the power. I've lost the, the the confidence to resist the power of a trending hashtag. Yes, and that's right. This is an, a perfect example of that. And you know what? Just purely as for insight here, it's something I don't I don't hide this. Um, I don't talk about my family a lot, except in, a, in very general terms on these things, just for privacy reasons. But my wife is an elementary school teacher. Mm-hmm. And teachers are an interesting group as, as a class. I, I, I have a lot to say about teachers, good mm-hmm. and bad. 
But one of the things that I've learned being married to one is that the systems they operate in are designed to remove personal accountability from any individual teacher. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that was the government that did this. I don't know if it was the unions that did this. I don't know mm -hmm. if it was the teachers themselves who wanted this to happen. But like over the years, my wife as a teacher has had situations where, and I'm going to be very vague on this because I don't want to get in trouble, but where there are issues that have alarmed her as a trained educator about the potential welfare or behavior of a, of a child. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And one of the things I learned very quickly was how she has almost no discretion because systems and procedures have been put in place that take a human being's concern and take her intuition, her judgment, her specific knowledge, her personal awareness, and, and I guess her biases, and basically go, we're zeroing those out because yeah. here's the form you fill out. And after you've filled out the form, it goes to this person who will do their process steps. <clears throat> so something you and I have talked about a little bit in the context of the, of the unfolding war in the Middle East is how a lot of people more on what we'd call the political left have been mugged by reality because in their heads, they have these distilled impressions of what the Middle Eastern conflict is and what Israel is and what the Palestinians are. And they have some settled settler white Jews. Uh, and this stuff hardened in their brains yeah. during yeah. campus debates. And now they're confronted with something like Hamas, which is like explicitly like we wish to kill more Jews. And it doesn't fit their framework. And I think a lot of people on the right, and I, I don't, I'm not aiming this at you, but it, it might apply to you a little bit. Our framework, because I include myself in this, would be like, this is not the government's business. This is this yeah. is this should be left yeah. to the individual organ the sports organizations or the civic um, civic society civic is the society, framework yeah. for an actual functioning democracy. But the problem yeah. is we are not a functioning democracy in this sense, and civil society has effectively I won't say it's collapsed, lost, kind but of it's locked up. It's yeah. become um sclerotic in this sense. Yeah. So I don't I'm going to let you talk about the political motivations for Smith. And I think you and I have been on the record. We don't approve of what the conservative premiers are doing here. And that's and because we don't trust their motivations and we don't trust their, and we don't trust their intentions here. Not, well, I don't trust either of those that. things, but they are responding opportunistically to a general societal level failure. And I, that's I, don't, right. yeah. I don't like how they're doing it. I don't trust their motives and I don't trust their outcomes, but they're responding to something real. And, and I, I, and I I'll let you talk about motives I, in a minute, but yeah. I think sports is the interesting one. Mm -hmm. I think you've you've mentioned how Alberta's gone further than New Brunswick and Saskatchewan, and one sure. of the ways they've gone further is sports. Yeah, this is going to be my guess. Sports is going to be the one that's probably going to be the most complicated in terms of the nitty gritty details. Yep, but it's also going to be the one that's going to be the most lopsidedly publicly popular. Oh, I think the surgeries. Is, is is the one that's going to be lopsidedly public popular, and this is the I don't problem. think enough people think about that, but enough people might think about think, some fourteen-year-old biological male laying a rugby hit on a fourteen-year-old girl, and that and who's yeah, 40 pounds. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm not saying that's that's wrong, but I think when you think of the idea of letting people under the age of you're going to defend letting people under the age of seventeen change their genitals, 
I, I think that hits a real hard button, especially for, for a lot of parents as well. So like, and then, and then you get into the more complicated nuanced stuff around when, when should you be um, prescribing puberty blockers and things like that? I mean, this is, I could get into that conversation. I think it's an interesting one because my own thinking definitely has shifted in recent years as, uh, um, about, about this. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting conversation that I think, uh, where should I go with this? Where should I go with this, Matt? Should I go right into the politics on this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you I think you've laid out broadly the one point I would make. And it's kind of a pivot to the politics. My understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that most of what Alberta is proposing or what Smith was talking about, because he had oh, a big press conference on Thursday. It's is it just stepping up to ban stuff that is generally speaking not happening anyway. That's right. Yeah, exactly. It, it is. And then the other problem that we're going to, that you're going to, like a lot of her critics are going to run into is that most of the stuff that she's going to propose, I'm saying she's definitely snuck some stuff in there that she shouldn't have, but most of the stuff that she's proposing here, and I thinking sports, maybe, mm -hmm. um, the, but certainly surgeries, I think there's certainly concerns about uh, the use of cross-sex hormones and, mm -hmm. and, and, and puberty blockers among um, minors, young minors. Most of the stuff I think is actually more in line with where people really are yeah, and especially parents than a lot of her critics are going to realize oh, we, if, we warned them in new brunswick and saskatchewan the same thing you know i think that if you are going to be the federal liberals or jody gondek or calgary mayor or a progressive yeah. left provincial politician who's going to be like Nope, I think schools should keep uh, all pronouns secret from parents and nope i think that children should be able to undergo uh, gender affirming surgeries at any age and nope i don't think there should be any restrictions on puberty blockers and okay okay if yeah. that's the position that you're gonna stake out for yourself because uh, the baddie daniel smith is a big evil transphobic bigot i don't think that's a winning nuanced credible position for you to take oh, as a progressive leftist yeah these people got to get off twitter and talk to a real human being well and i thought but i mean they're setting themselves up right they're setting themselves up for something that is going to get them all the likes on twitter and none of the votes in the real world because nobody's going to explain to them that they think that they're yeah. actually crazy when you sound crazy when you when you when you say things like that um so i i think that the, the, as i said the what she, what Smith is doing is probably more broadly popular than I think that a lot of her critics are are coming to terms with and and will recognize. That doesn't mean that what she's doing is right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where I would transition to the politics of all of this because the politics to me are as interesting, if not more interesting, than the actual proposals. Um. So, firstly, I would point out that Daniel Smith actually isn't a social conservative and never has been. No, she's always been libertarian from the libertarian yep. side of the tent oh indecisively also, so i mean i'm oh, thousands of kilometers away and i know that about her yeah oh yeah and like she's i've spoken with her and she's very um intelligent on this and that she has a a respect for social conservatism as being a necessary pillar in the big tent of conservatism mm -hmm. it's yeah. they're a necessary pillar in the coalition and she respects their their points of view um and has always felt able to work with those points of view but she's not a social conservative. You know, she's she's um always been quite good on gay rights, generally speaking. She's she's been, you know, same-sex marriage, great, super, you live your life. And also um 
the gay definitely didn't, I think, been good on gay rights from a libertarian perspective in the sense that like government should be telling you what the shit to do. Like this isn't this isn't our job. You're an adult. Have fun. You're an adult. Exactly. Do you do you do you? So all of that history and backstory is to say that I was not expecting a trans crusade from Danielle Smith. Mm. This is not aligned with her her worldview. This is not aligned with her interests. It's just not really aligned with her wheelhouse. So she's so responding why, to something. Why exactly has she decided to take on bluntly a crusade a, a crusade on this particular issue that is going to absolutely dominate? Why is she making it the priority of her next legislative session? She's taking on a suite of policies that are going to get challenged in court. Mm-hmm. She's going to spend the next couple of years of her legislative agenda defending this. Yep. Um, oh, and not just legislative agenda, Jen, like, but also public, oh, like her public yeah, comms are going to be eaten by this. Yeah, her entire political life is going to get eaten by this. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get eaten by this potentially for years unless she flip flops. And I'm not entirely sure that she will. Why? What is she responding to? To what end? And also considering this was never like this wasn't something she campaigned on. This was mm-hmm. never her deal. And my only obvious conclusion is to go to a man named David Parker, who's at the head of something called Take Back Alberta, mm-hmm. which is a fairly socially conservative, culturally conservative, kind of tribally own the libs type conservative group mm-hmm. that I think was foundational in her taking over essentially the UCP and getting the memberships required for her to win the, the, the leadership of the UCP. Yeah. Um obviously she is still taking i think this man's calls and i think that to some extent i'm not sure that daniel smith has transitioned in her own head to understanding that she's the boss bitch now Mm. i still think she's taking calls and being responsive to the people who put her in power and her whom she would broadly understand to be her constituents but she hasn't quite understood that no you don't have to take Yeah, you don't actually have to take David Parker's calls anymore. You don't have to do his bidding. Like you're you're the premier now. You're the boss now. You get to set the terms on which you have relationships with these stakeholders, even if they are powerful in a narrowly in a narrow kind of way. I don't think that David Parker could credibly present um a threat to her leadership at this point i don't think there's anyone else who could take her on at this point on the conservative side so why and why take on not only the trans rights stuff i mean if she had just come come out and absolutely mimicked and copied what saskatchewan and new brunswick did and said look we think that there should be um disclosure of pronouns for among students at school and just left it there she would have appealed, appeased, or appealed to exactly the same beat, same base for exactly the same reasons. She's chosen to go way further than that. Pick it up a little. Why? Why? I and mean, I think I, that tell me why, right? And then I don't know. I, I I think that she still feel. I think she, in her heart, feels beholden to these people, and wants to come through for them in a really big way. She clearly, wants to come through for them in a really big way. Even though, bluntly, I don't think she has to. I don't think she had, I think she has to throw them something, but is I do this, think she had to th- throw them everything. Is this kind of, so one of the things in, hi, uh, Matt here from L- Laurentian, Canada. Um, yeah. I have a question. Okay. I have told you often how 
the self image Albertans have of themselves mm-hmm. is silly and bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's somehow in her head that Alberta has to go further than New Brunswick and Saskatchewan because it's Alberta? Maybe that could and be part of it. We go bigger it's, in Alberta. Yeah. It's an interesting proposition. The other thing that I would also say, and like, I think it's absolute pointless dynamite for the federal government to step in here. Like, I, I think that I want to talk about that. About that in a minute. Oh, we're go going to, we're going to talk to them. And I, I don't, don't. And this is the reason why I, I think it's, it's, it's dangerous is because look, we're in a confederation and in a confederation, I expect a philosophically and culturally conservative province to take on a philosophically and culturally conservative set of values yeah. around contentious issues. I think that's okay. I think it's okay for Alberta to have a different approach to treatment of gender dysphoric youth than Ontario or BC. Mm-hmm. I think that's okay. Um, provided How it's dare you? The, well, provided with it's, it's within the framework of the law and human yep. rights and, and, and those frameworks are appropriately situated and, and permit difference within a certain degree, right? Like, I think that there's a there's a tension between those two things that that is that can and should be allowed to exist. So to try and steamroller over more conservative sections of the country from above and say no, there shall be one single approach to dealing with this contentious and nuanced issue from the federal government is much worse than the province steamrolling over school boards and sports leagues and demanding the same. Right. Like this is not a country that is the, the country is not homogeneous. It's it's a diverse country. It's an ideologically diverse country. There can be different perspectives and approaches to this provide within certain boundaries, within boundaries, certain boundaries of human rights. And I think that that's OK and appropriate. A couple of points I want to make. OK, um, go. I've been rambling. This has been no, no. the Jen Gerson Ramble Show. What do you got? What do you got? So on the federal issue. Yes. And I admit this is an issue to the side of it. OK, but they are going to jump in. This is a fight they're going to want. Absolutely. And I, 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 I'm basically off of Twitter, except when I log in to tweet my stuff. But when I did, when I, when I glanced at it this morning, because I I had a column I published at the line this morning and I went and I tweeted it out and I was looking, I I couldn't help myself. I just kind of just, I just looked at the feed. And one of the things I saw, and I saw it repeatedly, was a point being made by federal liberals or people in that orbit that Premier Smith is stoking division by proposing solutions in search of a problem. And I thought about that. And I fundamentally agree with that. I agree with federal liberals, either elected or uh, proxies and, and spokespeople, that for political purposes, Daniel Smith is proposing divisive policies to appeal to voters, and that there is not a real need to legislate on these issues. I think the liberals are right about right. that. I think that's right. And on behalf of millions of Canadian gun owners, I don't, I don't, I don't think that there were hundreds of, yeah. or if, or even thousands of of Albertan yeah. dysphoric youths who were like getting uh, a testosterone or estrogen like candy yeah. at the at the corner store. I didn't, I don't think that that was something that was actually happening in Alberta. I agree with the federal liberals that Daniel Smith is proposing divisive but popular policy for electoral benefit. And on behalf of several million lawful Canadian gun owners, I invite any federal liberal saying that to go fuck themselves. <laughs> and I started I started to think, oh, oh, I'm sorry, federal liberals, is it now bad to propose useless solutions in search of problems for po- electoral benefit? I don't, I'm not obligated to take that bullshit seriously. And 
obviously me and my priors, I went to gun control first, but I was thinking about this last night to any liberal who is outraged that Daniel Smith is proposing unnecessary legislation to address problems that don't exist for political purposes. These are the guys who brought in a luxury tax on yachts and private jets. <laughs> yeah, you have no credibility on that file, no, do you? I, I once again invite them to go fuck themselves. And I certainly think about this more. Plastic you know, up bag and, ban. Oh, and, by the way, the co-op plastic bags. There was a petition this week sent to Parliament to save the co-op plastic bags, which are not plastic in the sense that they're not they're they're literally not made from petrochemicals they're made from cornstarch polymer and they're fully biodegradable and the petition was denied of course it was of course it was you know the other you know the other great example of the thing i'm talking about here so we went to guns to the the yacht and the jet tax up until 2021 there actually had been a fair degree of political unanimity on vaccine policy and on the mm-hmm. eve of the federal election the liberals mm-hmm. dropped the federal uh, vax travel mandate mm-hmm. here a yeah. divisive unnecessary policy announced for political gain and i look well, I, they were just targeting ra- evil racist anti-vaccinated vaccinated anti-vax racists um, I, and nazis matt so you know you can't really blame them for that obviously on the substance of the issue and the criticisms of daniel smith i probably am with the liberals on this the federal liberals but for the love of God, go get bent. Because <laughs> the, I, I, I'm sorry, I, if we are now to assume that we are in a in a post-proposing stupid bullshit for political reasons era, someone call the PMO and tell them. Because okay, also, they have not also, gotten that memo. Can we also play 4D chess here? You sure. want to play 4D chess? Is no, it but possible? Let's... Is it possible that the provinces are taking on the social issues so that the federal conservatives don't have to so that the federal conservatives can can force the federal the federal liberals to continue to put all of their priorities on these relatively what we call luxury beliefs or or tangential culture war issues while the conservatives continue to go hard on cost of living housing bread and butter um conservative uh sort issues it's possible but one of the interesting things, and this was actually one of the other points I was I was going to make here, uh, having just invited the federal liberals to go fuck themselves, I feel honor bound to now invite the federal conservatives to go fuck themselves. <laughs> um, one of the things that's happening in this country, and you and I have talked about this before, and I don't, it's not a particularly original insight here. I confess that people ask the questions all like, "What's happened to conservatives?" or "What's happened to conservatism?" I think conservatives in Canada and broadly across the Western world have become, I don't even want to say more extreme necessarily in their policies, but I think there has been a rightward shift in conservatism broadly across the Western world. Mm -hmm. But I think the extent of that shift has been exaggerated by something else, which is that the power structures that run the conservative parties and sort of regulate conservatism broadly on an institutional level are now captured by a fringe. And to, you, you'd said before that like Smith might feel, what's the name of that dude? Uh, Take back a bird. Parker. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of versions of David Parker's out there who have disproportionate levels of influence over key conservative decision makers who are now placating a part of the base that you can probably tell to get bent because they're going to vote for you anyway. Now, I don't know if in the federal level it's going to matter because I think the liberals might collapse into oblivion anyway. So I don't know if the conservatives need to be smart and strategic. But I do think that conservatives generally in Canada right now 
are overly beholden to a fringe. Not necessarily that they're going to legislate in line with their priorities, although, hey, maybe Smith is, but more in terms of messaging, of tone, of style. There's a real angry fringe in conservatism, which I don't think is the majority of it, but it's enough of it that it has captured real power in this country. And I think this is not an issue for the federal conservatives yet, but it could be because I think well, can I, Paul Yab and the guys around him are too afraid of Maxime Bernier. One yes. final thought, Jen, I'll turn this back to you. Okay. You know who hasn't fallen victim to this? Who? Doug Ford. And I right. will, and I will almost never go out and defend Doug Ford because I don't like the guy and I think he's incompetent. But one of the things he has done well is that he has ruthlessly purged his party of the ideological extremists. And I think that's because fundamentally, although Doug Ford walks and talks and bluffs and blusters like a conservative, he's a marshmallow. And that's why he's constantly flip-flopping because he takes bold positions that he doesn't have the ideological conviction to defend. But what he was able to do because he's a marshmallow was correctly identify the fringe of his party as not only a threat to him, but also just being unpalatable. And he blew all those fuckers out in airlock. He didn't blow out the corrupt ones, unfortunately. I mean, that's his next step. That's a different I mean, kind of problem. That's a different kind of problem. But can I sort of agree with that assessment, but then take it further? Always. It's not just the conservatives that have become captured by their fringes. Oh, no, absolutely not. The, the, but I think the, the conservatives the, resisted a bit longer. Maybe, but I think that the the what are broadly considered left parties, and I would include I the liberals and the conservatives, are also completely and utterly captured by their fringe. The problem with you're seeing with the left parties is they don't recognize that those people are fringe. They literally think that those people are the normies and they're not. They don't have the, the guts to tell them you're being ridiculous. Shut up. Because they don't see them as ridiculous. That's the or problem. Even if they do, they just they're they're squishy and they don't mm -hmm. No, Like if, if you're a no. prog, you don't want to be the most pragmatic prog. No, that's true. There's no win. There's no win for you in that. I think that and I think that we get into deep psychology here and sort of to try to explain this and what motivates different part people into different parties is a really interesting thing. And there's a reason for this. I think conservatives at least recognize that that's a problem. I think that the liberals or I think liberals in the NDP have been basically taken over by a, an ideological fringe that are wildly outside where normies actually are, but they don't recognize that that's actually something that's happened and has already happened. They don't recognize that they've been captured by that fringe. So I'm not saying that one's better or worse. Mm. I'm just saying that. And then what happens here is that both of these fringes wind up feeding off of one another and then they wind up radicalizing one oh, another back and forth. Oh, no. Life, like political life in Canada these days is 75% of the population taking cover as the extremes shoot at yeah, each other. That's right. That's right. So anyway, I, I think that the, the dynamic on this is, is, is really poisonous. I think it's particularly obvious, fascinating, and awful to watch on trans stuff because, of course, the collateral damage on all of this are relatively... Kids. Our kids, in this case, and also kids who who don't both have the don't have the time, the experience, and the capacity to necessarily advocate for themselves and their own interests, but also don't necessarily know what their own interests are because they're children, they're literal children. Yeah. I really, really would like to say as a parent that I hate the way that this is being framed as parents' rights versus children's rights. I think that the second we start considering parents and children's rights in opposition, we are heading for an absolute catastrophe that's going to wind up with some very bad results. With the exception of cases of of abuse, parents' yeah. rights and children's rights are aligned. 
Yep. My interest as a parent is the best interest of my children. I have legal, moral, ethical, and emotional and spiritual responsibilities to assure the best outcome for my children. Yep. And, you know, our, our we're, we're parents and children are not at loggerheads. They're not in opposition. They're dyads. And if you don't respect that they're dyads, that, that we're, we're one and the same, we're families, we're connected and treat them as dyads, as, 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 as part of a system, an intertwined system of people who need one another, um, you are going to be using the state, the power of the state in, in incredibly dangerous ways that will harm children irrevocably. Um, yeah, I agree with, with that. With the, with the except, with the exception of, of cases where there's obvious abuse happening, and, and or other kinds of parental failures, like other incapacity kinds of and mental illness, incapacity, like mental that, illness, yeah. neglect. I'm not saying that there's no role for the state here. There obviously is. Yeah. But if you're not coming at this from a position of treating parents and children as being on the same team, fundamentally, mm-hmm. there's something wrong in your head, and you're doing that. There's something wrong with you. You're. This is not the right approach. So I would just leave it at that and say, um, uh, yeah, I hate this. I hate talking about this. It's right. awful. For for what it's worth, like first of all, like and subscribe. Like um, and subscribe, and we will. We, we, no, we, I'm we, with we you. If I if we never have to talk about this bullshit again, that's fine by me. The only going to happen. I just have one follow up to add to something that you said about how all the parties are are base captured. Yeah. Or fringe captured. I agree sure. with that, but I I I, I agree. But I think the liberals actually have one specific pathology that might be more important in understanding them to an extent that neither conservatives or NDP allow themselves to get away with. I think the liberal fundamental pathology is that they don't realize they're partisan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And this is this, but this kind of goes back to what I was saying. They don't realize that they're captured because they think that they're just the normal beyond it. Yeah, because yeah, they're, because they're the pragmatic centrist. We're not, who is looking we're for not, solutions we're not ideological. Aliens. We're just what Canadians think and feel. Yeah. And that's and that's the that's where you get blind, right? That's where you get partisan blind. Yeah, those other bastards are partisan. Yeah, we're yeah. not ideological. Yeah, so I, I we, think I think for right. the liberals, yeah. it's a specific flavor of that pathology. But in yeah. your main point, I think is accurate. They're all fringe captured to an extent. Yeah. Um, foreign interference inquiry. Uh, okay. Like like and subscribe. Like blah, and blah, subscribe blah. the line. Um, I honestly don't have that much to say about it now, just because this is kind of beginning and I don't think we've really learned anything that interesting yet. The point I want to make is broader. Um, one of the, one of the things that's been happening is that there's been a degree of partisan bickering and back and forth, largely liberal to conservative and, and, and reversed, uh, about the scope of the inquiry, the, the stuff that has made the liberals look bad in recent years has been Chinese. Mm-hmm. Chinese uh, Chinese government interference in Canada. Mm-hmm. Liberals have noted rightly that there has been suggestions of Indian back shenanigans in conservative oh, yeah. politics. Absolutely. So there's been this, there's been this debate about what the scope of the inquiry should be. So let me tell you my preference, but also let me tell you with my concern with my preference. Okay. My prefer my preference is fuck them all. <laughs> have an inquiry into everything. Put it all out there. China, India, Russia, Iran. Those are the big four. But but others go, well, what about the United States and post media and stuff like that? Fuck it. Great. I'm inquiring the United States then. But my concern is that you can't do all this in one inquiry. So what I'm requesting, and I will be ignored, of course, and probably rightly, I want a dozen goddamn inquiries. I want Justice Rouleau to spend the rest of his life, <laughs> the rest of every 12 life. months, that's doing an curse. inquiry into something else. 
I want yeah. 12 more just like him. I want 144 inquiries over the next 12 years. And the reason I want this is because we live in a country that is allergic to accountability and transparency. Yep. The only way we can find out shit that American City Hall reporters can discover by calling the mayor's office yep. is to invoke the goddamn Emergencies Act. We're, we're, we're at a country now where like the RCMP or local police forces don't release the name of murder victims and... Why? Because fuck you. Yeah. And you ask why and you don't get that answer either. Yeah. Um, did you, I don't know if you read this this week. Uh, Paul Wells had kind of a, a sad but also hilarious story of trying to get the government. So I, I'll, I'll recap this. I don't know if you read this, but Paul had heard a while ago that a leading British scientist had been hired on a contract basis by the Canadian government to review our COVID response to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And Paul fired off like an email to the government and say, hey, I, I heard that this guy had been hired. Can you confirm it? And they wouldn't. And basically, I don't remember how long it had been, but it had been months, maybe a year. The government has finally disclosed because an MP using their privilege mm-hmm. had yeah. asked the question. Yeah. They got the answer. But that that is just, to me, a perfect example. And I would encourage everyone, go to Paul Wells' Substack, subscribe. He's great. You'll love him. But more to the point, it's a perfect microcosm. And you and I have similar stories about this. You want to get the government to give you a small piece of information that in a moral, ethical, and civic sense, Canadians are entitled to know, that is not commercially sensitive, is not a matter of national security, and doesn't even pose, cynically speaking, a risk to the government of political embarrassment. An example would be, have you hired this dude to chair a panel? It's it's literally reflexive, it's reflexive privacy and secrecy at this point. And also I would even say like, like, no, like, and also I would even say national security, the con- the ambit of national security has been radically expanded to in order to justify this reflexive secrecy at this point. Like the, the Canadian government doesn't trust its citizens to actually have information. It just, it, it it sees itself as a fundamentally paternalistic entity whose duty is to tell us citizens what we need to know. It doesn't see itself as a service that is in service to its citizenry it doesn't it doesn't think like a democratic agency it thinks like a technocracy that's the way this government works at a deep deep level and it's very unhealthy and it's part of the reason why people are so pissed off right now because they can sense that and it makes them incredibly angry look there's two other news stories but we're starting to run out of time uh edmonton shooter city hall shooter uh motivated by a hodgepodge of crazy um yeah, including things like wokeism, Gaza, DEI. I mean, take your take your pick of uh, the clickbaity type SEO hashtags that we're going to put at the bottom of this um, video. And like this guy's little manifesto was was uh, seemed yeah, to have included it. Video statement to me, and I don't mean to downplay this, Jen, because I know how scary an incident that was, and mm-hmm. I, I've talked to some of the people who were there, and it sounds awful. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a shooting and firebomb attack at Edmonton City Hall. But in terms of ideological motivation, everything I see about this guy is so scattershot. I can't draw any conclusions about this. And I honestly think, and I don't say that downplay it, this sounds more mental health than coherent political ideology. Yeah. Well, and this this goes back to the conversations that we previously had about terrorism. When does someone get labeled a terrorist versus not a terrorist? And the answer is 
when you can demonstrate pretty much beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is motivated by a political or religious end, yeah, I don't fully see... self go consistent and in coherent way. Yeah, a, a, in a, in a in a in a in a coherent and consistent way. I don't see evidence of that in this case. I uh, the think you're points the other way to incoherence and confusion. Yeah, the the evidence points to incoherence, and we all know that people who are not mentally well will often grab bag from whatever issues of the day and they'll just sort of like cram it in and in order oh. to justify their actions. It's just, you know, this is, this is, this is why sometimes there is a gray zone between mental illness and terrorism. It's I don't think that this is a gray zone. I think this looks like mental illness. It's very rare to find a conspiracy theorist who believes one, one no, thing was a conspiracy. What? Like yeah. he 100% thinks like Oswald killed Kennedy, that Roswell was a weather balloon that the 9-11 towers were brought down by al-Qaeda terrorists who had hijacked um, planes, but the vaccine is microchips. Like, no, no, no. You find people who kind of are coherent across the spectrum. So, yeah, yeah once, this once me, somebody's Once somebody's critical thinking begins to erode, it's it's like Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. It, it doesn't end with that. It, it all ends in flat earth. That's all I'm telling you. Um, last thing to bring up is... Yeah, you want to talk about healthcare. The other one I wanted to bring up was that apparently BC's decided that their safe supply system is going so well that it looks like they're going to expand it by providing medical grade fentanyl and heroin. I haven't seen anything about that. Was that just today? Yeah, that was just, just announced. So I thought, you know, to be consistent on this point, I think that uh, I will go back to a comment that I made earlier in this podcast that it is okay for different provinces to have different approaches to contentious issues. And it will be fascinating for us to watch over the next five years what the consequences of these types of expanded safe supply programs would be and compare them to a province like Alberta, which has decided to go a very different route. It's gone a treatment-based model route as opposed to a safe supply route. So let's just... Be working in your benefit because I did not see that on my morning news scan. Was that just yeah. announced locally this morning? Like BC? No, yeah. It, it, I don't know exactly when it was announced, but it, it's, 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 it's new. But anyway... I just think that's going to be interesting to watch. But on that note, I think we want to end it off in this podcast with uh, chatting about your concerns about healthcare. Um. Well, I mean, it's I don't know. I don't know exactly how to phrase it. Um. So I've had a couple of really interesting conversations over the last few weeks, and these conversations have partially flowed out of my work, but it's also also partially flowed out of my social circle, my 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 personal life where I know people, and especially I got to know people during COVID, who are healthcare professionals, system participants, or experts in, in some sort of political or academic role. And, you know, during COVID, I needed to rely on these people because I had to learn a ton, right? Like, I'll, I'll, yeah. all of us went through the same process in the media. And I haven't stayed in touch with everybody I got to know at the time, but I've stayed in touch with some of them. Um, mm -hmm. And I've built connections where I trust them and they trust me. And I want the listeners to know I want the viewers to know, and they're obviously have to take my word on this because I can't name names. I'm only talking about people who over the course of COVID, I concluded were fairly moderate, reasonable people, not the sky is falling hysterics, not, you know, we must wear masks forever and everybody needs 900 boosters, mm -hmm. not deniers, obviously people who agreed that COVID was an acute public health crisis and a real threat, an emergency. Mm -hmm. That also that eventually our society with vaccines and approved therapeutics and population level immunity would emerge from it. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the things that kind of has been bubbling up and you know the old saying right uh, the plural of of data uh, anic- uh, what's the fuck is the, the, the plural, plural of anecdotes, of anecdotes data. and data yeah yeah so a bunch of anecdotes that i have heard does not support a firm conclusion and i will i will preface that but what's been happening to me since the christmas holidays because when i was socializing when i was seeing people mm-hmm. was that in a series of conversations i have heard things about the state of our healthcare system that were alarming. Mm-hmm. Now, I think if you are reasonably news savvy, you will know that there's problems. You know, the, you'll read the Ontario Medical Association report warning about hospital wait times or the Canadian or the uh, CJAM, what is the CJMA, the Canadian Journal of yeah, Canadian Medical you know Association I mean. Journal. Yeah, okay, thank you. All right. Um, and so you read if you are if you read these things, you know that smart people are sounding the alarm. But what is interesting to me is what I would call a disparity in the level of alarm in the public comments and the private comments. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody's like this to an extent, but I think this is particularly the case in Canada. If you were to ask me how things were going privately in any hypothetical situation, I'd be like, oh, Jen, it's fucked. It's the worst it's ever been. It's been terrible. But you put a microphone on my lapel and put a camera on me, ask me how things are going. And I'll be like, well, there's challenges. Like Canadians have a habit of drifting to understatement in public comments. Yeah. And that's just something I've learned over my career. Also conflict avoidance. Also priority setting and decision making. Yes. Also disappointing people. There are challenges, Jen. There are some challenges (laughs) in Canada. So what I've been doing in recent weeks is reaching out and talking with some trusted medical medical experts on um, the yep. medical system healthcare system experts and what i've been hearing is horrifying and they're blunt with me off the record they're reluctant to speak on the record yeah and this is putting me in an awkward situation where i told my editors at tvo a few weeks ago that i was going to go out as put together some articles on the state of the healthcare system Mm-hmm. No one wants to go on the record and tell me what they really think right? because they're way more comfortable telling me off the record what they're worried about. So it's proving difficult for me to get someone to go on the record and tell me that they are as alarmed as they will tell me off the record. Go back but, to our conversation in Canada about our allergy to transparency and openness. It's actually deep-seated cultural problem. It is. Yeah. What I'm starting to realize, and this is largely Ontario specific, but I doubt it's unique to here because most of my most of my contacts is healthcare is provincial. Mm-hmm. Most of my contacts over COVID were within Ontario, mm-hmm. but I'm going to guess that this applies broadly. The picture that's being painted for me, and I have to be a bit vague here, is of a system that, in fact, instead of recovering after COVID has been deteriorating steadily since COVID largely due to human resource issues, burnout that has never been addressed Mm -hmm. and that we're getting to the point where, you know, the way these things graph out a slow decline suddenly becomes a rapid decline Yep. more. And again, I can't name names, but more than one knowledgeable and well-placed individual has told me that we are looking at something akin to a functional collapse of the healthcare system. And that doesn't mean that you won't get care on any given day. It means that you won't know when you show up at the hospital, if you'll get care. Well, it also means that essentially we're going to wind up triaging, effectively triaging. 
one of the interesting stats that I can't prove yet is that one of what one of the things that have been suggested to me is that as one as discrete parts of the system crack under pressure, mm-hmm. the others will crack much faster. Domino mm-hmm. effect, right? Because yeah. you lose yeah. one pillar, all of a sudden the rest are holding up more of the weight, and then another yeah. pillar will go. And so it will we- and it will start to show up in like uh things like uh people are dying of cancer two or three years earlier than they would have. 10 years ago you know what i mean even though the treatments have have improved and we're already seeing people dying in emergency rooms yeah and obviously look some percentage of patients who arrive in emergency room are never going to survive because their illness or injury is too acute that's right getting more and more stories of people dying in emergency rooms without having been seen by a doctor yeah and you'll you'll start to see it in 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 the statistics right like it'll just be like your 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 uh, survival rate for this versus that in an emergency room setting will start to decline at a population level. That's what it's actually going to become. That's where it's going to become obvious. And I think in this country, Jen, we, and I know you got to go in a few minutes. I'll Mm -hmm. I'll start to wrap this up. Um, We tend to think of healthcare as being synonymous with hospitals, but the system is much broader than that. Yeah. So let's say, God forbid, I'll use you as a hypothetical example. Let's say you have a bad fall Mm -hmm. and you need knee surgery. Mm-hmm. Let's say the system is there for you. You you kind of you you are a high social capital person. You will have mm-hmm. connections. You call in favors. You get that MRI. You get that surgery. You you do your in hospital, your inpatient rehab, and you come home and you call the local home care, uh, whatever whatever you'd call that in Alberta. You're like, hey, look, I just had knee surgery. I got young kids. I need someone to help me. I can't shower myself. Like I can't get up and down the stairs for a couple of weeks. And you're going to have a two-week window where you need home care, and it's mm-hmm. going to be a four-week wait list. Right. So it's going to fall on your mom flying in from out of town to help you take a shower, or your husband's going to have to take a leave of absence from or his we're work. Have to hire a private nurse, and that's going to come out of pocket. Be... And as that happens, what you will have is people who should be able to recover at home won't. And that's what I talk about right. when those pillars collapsing. They're going to get yep. sicker. They're going to end up back in the hospital. And then they wind up blocking up blood against the, for other more serious and, and acute patients. Yep. Or right. you call your family doctor and you're like, I, I picked up an infection because I haven't been able to take care of my wound properly because no home care nurse was available. And yeah. your family doctor goes, you know what? This is the 300th call I've had today. Fuck it. I quit. Right. Another pillar goes out of the system. Yeah. So you are and then I can't, I can't find a replacement family doctor because the entire system's stressed. That's, that's, yeah. Ask yourself one question. Are you confident in the ability of Canadian governments to see this problem coming with enough clarity to do anything meaningful in terms of state capacity response to prevent this outcome? No. Me neither. Cool. So like and subscribe to the line. So that we can buy ourselves some U.S. health insurance. (laughs) Where would be the closest hospital to you in Alberta? For me, it's easy. I drive to Buffalo. Where would you go? Uh, it, I, it would have to be a flight. Nah. Yeah, I'd have to take a flight. It would probably be somewhere in Montana. But if you're taking a flight, then you would go that anywhere. Probably, you might as well go. You, you might as well go anywhere, right? Great hospitals in Western New York. Heck, we two probably hours, are not going to be able to avoid the American healthcare. We may need to go for Mexican. What about what's the Mexican healthcare situation? Can we buy insurance for Mexico? My friend, we can buy insurance for anywhere. Can we? Like and, and subscribe. subscribe. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Stay healthy.
stay healthy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Don't die on us. We need you. So I will, I will I will get some articles written about this, but hey, if any of you out there are healthcare system participants and you want to talk with me, drop us a line at, uh, you email me, matt at readtheline.ca. I would be interested. So for TVO, I'm going to talk about Ontario stuff, but I would honestly be interested in hearing from anyone in the healthcare system outside of Ontario. I want to know if we're particularly bad off or if we're just tracking in the same direction as everybody. Matt, matt. at readtheline.ca. My suspicion is that you're probably tracking, but you probably also are, are worse off. We're a little bit older. Back in older, Ontario, we're a bit older. Older and, and the population demands are higher and the, the growth is higher and all yeah. the rest. So, Yep. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you'll be spared this, but I think Quebec, Ontario, and the Atlantic will hit it first. Yeah. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Have a great weekend. Bye.